This is Mario Andretti, and you are listening to Below the Yellow Line. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Below the Yellow Line podcast. Anybody that knows me obviously knows that I love NASCAR, but one of the things that I might love more than just watching the races and bringing all of you guys my coverage is the history of it. And today we have a man that probably loves NASCAR history more than anybody else in the world, Mr. Ken Martin, the um, director of historical content for NASCAR Digital Media. How are you doing? I'm good, Samuel. How are you today? I'm doing great. Um, got a few questions for you. Um, okay. And, you know, obviously you're, you're a very trusted source on history. So if I get anything wrong, which I have a tendency to do a lot, uh, please correct me um, because I, I want to learn all that I can while I have you on the sure. horn today. Yeah. Um, but how did you get into racing? Was it something you always loved or, or was it just something you acquired? It was something I always loved. I, I had a chance to go to the races when I was still in diapers. My dad worked for a company called Winds Friction Proofing, and he would go around to the races putting decals on the race cars, and um, uh, it was an oil additive. And if the drivers uh, would put a decal on their car and if they won the race, then he would present them a check in victory lane or a jacket or a shirt, you know, things like that. And so I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. And so I was able to attend races all throughout central Virginia, down into North Carolina, all as a, as a, as a, you know, very young kid. But um, with my dad, I had access into the garage area a lot of times, something that's unheard of today for, you know, such a young kid. But uh, traveling to a lot of the tracks, I I was able to get into the garage area and um, immediately started this love affair with the with the sport. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, I was able to go to Daytona in 1958 and attend the last beach race. And I've got pictures of me and my dad and my sister on the starting line down at Daytona. And, uh, uh, and so really through my dad and through my love for the sport and his love for the sport, I was able to attend a lot of historic events at a very young age. And I had the ability, you know, when you love something, you pick it up. And, and I would love to read souvenir programs. And I would take the programs and memorize the pictures of the drivers and what they looked like and where they were from. And also, my mom said I learned how to count by car numbers, you know, that I would know that Perk Brown was zero junior and Melvin Creasy was 44. And you know, just things like that. And she said, I learned it, you know, at a very early age. So, yeah, I, I was bitten by the bug, you know, very early. And, um, you know, uh, for the first 30 years of my life, I was I was just a fan. Um, I went uh, to lots of races at Martinsville, which was their home track. Then also Charlotte, Darlington, Rockingham. I was at Rockingham in 1965 when the track opened, saw the very first race there. Um, 
but attend, you know, the world 600s and the Southern 500s. But also I kept up with a lot of the racing events around Central Virginia. And, you know, I would go to the South Boston Speedway, which is legendary for producing great race drivers. I'd go to the Southside Speedway in Richmond. Um, I would go down to Langley Speedway down in Hampton, Virginia. And so, you know, not only did I get to attend some of the big races, the Grand National or Cup races, as you'd call it, but also I had a chance to, uh, you know, to, to follow a lot of the young up-and-coming drivers as they wait, made their way through the local short track scene up until uh, what was the uh, late model sportsman series, which became the Xfinity series eventually. So uh, I was just bitten by the bug and, and, uh, and, and enjoyed it. Well, that's awesome that you talk about attending that last beach race at Daytona. And, you know, it's funny, you probably didn't know that maybe you were seeing that last beach race. And I was talking to my grandfather the, the, uh, the other day. He was born and raised in southeast Arkansas. And so when he was young, he had a chance to go with a friend to one of the races at what would become the ill-fated uh, Memphis, Arkansas Speedway. And he was talking about it so nonchalantly. And, and he's not really a fan, unfortunately. I haven't converted him yet, but yeah. um, he's still trying. Um, but he was talking and, and remembering things and I was just sitting there dumbstruck like how have you not told me this before I mean you saw Hall of Famers you saw legends you saw so many people that I admire at that race and you know, going to and I love also that you mentioned those short tracks as well we've been doing a cool thing here on the channel we've talked to a lot of short track owners and promoters and it's not just the big races that matter all the short tracks um, they lead into those big tracks yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, Samuel, because I think that, uh, you know, to feed your passion and love for the sport, you want to keep up with it on a regular basis. And um, again, back in, in my era, when I was growing up, you know, there might be a little bit in the newspaper, you might uh, uh subscribe to Southern Auto Racing or Southern Motor Racing newspapers or maybe National Speed Sport News, but it was tough to get information about a lot of the races. So the best way to get the information was to go to the races. And um, at the races uh, back then, especially, your souvenir program would be packed with a lot of information as far as results from other tracks and what the point standings were and, and uh, biographies about certain drivers and um, just, you know, things like that. And so I, I just love those and I, I collected my programs. I still have my program from the 1958 beach race. So, um, you know, I made my first trip to Darlington in 1961 for the, Southern 500 at Nelson Stacy one. And I've got, I've got that program. So uh, yeah, you mentioned that uh, Lehigh, that was to this date, it's still the largest dirt track that NASCAR ever competed on and has the fastest speed of any dirt track that NASCAR ever competed on. So yeah, sadly it, it was a little bit ill-fated, but, but as a, as a, place in NASCAR history, uh, 
in just a couple of races, they filled up a lot of uh, history books. They sure did. Maybe not for all the right reasons, but uh, I, I always joke that while you know my home state's uh, big Cup Series track didn't work out, I think Mark Martin atoned for for all the bad, or hopefully. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think he made up for it, uh, and then some for sure. Yeah, um, if you've got uh, if you've got Mark Martin representing you, you've got the best. I mean, uh, I've had the opportunity to work with Mark on several occasions, and when he went into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, I produced Mark's uh, Hall of Fame uh, tribute video, and um, you know, as I said, Mark is is just a, a all time great in in any any way you want to put it, but even a a better guy. So, uh, yeah. I, uh, or sorry, absolutely. I had the, had the chance to meet him. Uh, I think my dad actually bought a truck from him a few years ago at his dealership yeah. in Batesville. Um, but had a chance to meet him and, you know, I only spoke with him for about 30 seconds cause you know, there was a long line of people there to get autographs, but, uh, yeah. he's just one of those people. As soon as he walks in a room, the whole aura of the room is changed. I mean, yeah. it's just, you see him and if you're having a bad day, you're having a good day all of a sudden. It's just the kind yeah. of stand up guy he is. Yeah, he, um, you know, he was such an intense competitor. And I think that since he's retired, he's had a chance to reflect back on all of the great accomplishments that he's had. And, and he's been able to relax and enjoy uh, the sport and the people and talking about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, he, his history is so rich. In, in Arkansas, all through the Midwest, uh, racing in ASA and ARTGO and all of those Midwest short track series, he he's still a legend for sure. And I think he'll always be remembered as one in, in racing. You said if there was a just a good person Hall of Fame, he, he'd probably be yeah. uh, one of the first inductees. Yeah, if he had never won a race, he would still deserve a – a spot in, in racing history. That's for sure. It is. It's amazing. You know how one guy like that, you know, there's not many people we say that about, but Mark Martin yeah. is certainly, certainly one of them. Yeah, um, absolutely. You talked about how, I mean, you saw the transition firsthand from Daytona from beach to the two and a half mile super speedway we now go to today. And, and this is a very broad question and, and feel free to be as detailed or not as you like, but, how much do you think the sport has changed and evolved over the years? I mean, we have 75 years of history before us. How much has changed? Well, um, really, Samuel, it's changed. Everything has changed. But still, the basis of our sport is car against car, mechanic against mechanic, strategy versus strategy. So those things have not changed. But everything from the facilities to the communications to the coverage, I mean, every part of it has changed. And, uh, you know, I love the history of the sport and, and I enjoy going to the races as a as a young person, as a teenager. And I remember sitting on concrete slabs for grandstands and very limited concessions and and, and uh, restroom facilities and things like that and struggling with to hear the PA and scoreboards were practically non-existent. You know, Martinsville had a scoreboard that was all manually operated. 
like, you know, every lap they'd flip to, to show the next lap. And in his positions changed, they would change on that scoreboard, but everything was done manually. And really at that point, Martinsville in the, in the sixties was like state of the art. It was, it was miles ahead of most other tracks. So all of those things have changed. And I think we talked about, um, you know, getting your results and things like that. And, uh, you know, for years, uh, I worked with ESPN and I worked with a show called ESPN Speed Week that would come on once a week. And on that show, we would have highlights of NASCAR, IndyCar, off-road, sports car. But really, for a lot of people, that was their first and only time that they would get the results from those events. It was well before social media. It was well before, you know, a lot of the local uh, uh, coverages of the events. And so, you know, we would work all week to gather all that information to put on a, a half hour show or sometimes an hour show hosted by Bob Jenkins and Larry Newber and um, you know, it was sort of a way to tie the whole motorsports community together. Uh, now we can get on our phone and within seconds we'll know if somebody uh, has, has accomplished something in Japan at the Formula One race. Or we'll know who won the sports car race in Indianapolis or who won the drag race and, of course, who won the cup race. And via uh, Twitter and Instagram and all the other social media, uh, reporters or people on the scene are filing accounts second by second, minute by minute of what's going on. And, of course, with uh, satellite radio now, uh, you can be anywhere in the country and listen to every PRN or MRN broadcast uh, Every race is broadcast live from start to finish, uh, and that includes uh, Cup, Xfinity, and, and the Truck Series, and the majority of the ARCA races. Of course, IndyCar, Formula One, you know, they're all, uh, you know, you can go to Flow Racing and see what's happening uh, at practically any short track um, in the country. When I grew up, you know, about our only access to televised races was on ABC's Wide World of Sports. And uh, ABC in 1961 started covering NASCAR, but they might do four to six races a year. And those races would be taped uh, on, on the, the day of the race. Then they'd be taken and edited, and then they might be comp uh, combined with a, a, a ski jump show or, or cliff diving or whatever. And, and out of an hour and a half show, you might get 40 minutes or so of, uh, of, of racing. And that's, you would see it like two weeks after the event. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the world that we lived in through the 60s into the 70s that, uh, you know, there were very few races uh, one race that people may not remember or know about was uh, a cup race from Greenville, South Carolina in 1971. And that was the first race 
that was broadcast on live national TV from start to finish. And it was sort of a special event set up for ABC's Wide World of Sports. And ABC came on the air at five o'clock. As they came on the air, they were running the pace laps and then they dropped the green flag and they showed the entire race up until the finish. Uh, Bobby Isaac won, uh, Ken Squire was there. Uh, uh, doing the pit reporting and Ken Squire interviews Bobby after the race, but the race was set up so that it could be run in an hour and a half. You know, it, it was, it was, uh, and, and from what I've heard, you know, Bill France uh, was at the driver's meeting saying, Hey, we're on live national TV. Don't you guys screw it up? You know, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't give us any problems. We don't need any long caution flags. We don't, you know, because ABC's window was very strict and uh, fortunately they were able to run the race and finish it with enough time to do a victory lane interview and, um, you know, like that. But of course, everybody remembers or knows the 1979 Daytona 500 uh, was the first 500 to be broadcast live from start to finish on CBS. And uh, uh, that race had so many memorable moments, but of course, we all remember the fight between Bobby, Donnie, and Kale. And we remember that because of Donnie and Kale, uh, Donnie and Kale crashing, Richard Petty was able to win the race. So it, you know, and we did a documentary a few years ago called The Perfect Storm. And, and really all of the things in the NASCAR universe came together that day. Uh, you've heard stories of uh, snowstorms up and down the East Coast that forced people to be in inside all day. Uh, at this period of time, there were only three networks. You had ABC, CBS, and NBC. So when you have CBS you built in, you've got a third of the audience that's, uh, you know, that's, that uh, may be watching TV. So that race changed, um, you know, the sport forever. And one interesting thing about it that uh, I'll say is, you know, since 1979, we've seen the highlights of that fight every year. Every year when we go to Daytona, you see that fight. And uh, uh, people don't realize that that fight was on the screen for 23 seconds. That fight, you know, we're talking about Petty winning and Ken Squire goes and there's a fight and they go and you see Kale and Donnie and Bobby and you see the fight. And of course, Ken says, and there's a fight. And I mean, that's the one of the most famous calls that an announcer has ever made. But 23 seconds later, they're throwing it to Victory Lane to interview Richard Petty, and they never go back to the fight. You know, they never, they never, but that moment that changed NASCAR forever just happened in a very short window of time. So I think that's, um, you know, that's just part of how, how things can change very rapidly. And, and this year, uh, Donnie Allison was uh, selected for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I've been working with Donnie on uh, uh, done some interviews with him as well as other people 
that'll be played at the NASCAR Hall of Fame ceremony in January. And um, it'll also go into his spire. But through the years, I've become good friends with Donnie, and I'm so glad to see him uh, recognized by the Hall of Fame. But, you know, I, I've asked Donnie, I said, do you feel sometimes, you know, that moment, that fight overshadows your career? And he's like, well, it's what people want to talk about. It's what people want to know about. They, you know, they've heard the story dozens of times, but that doesn't matter. They want to hear it again. They want to see it again. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm glad Donnie is being recognized for all that he's accomplished, not just the fact that he was in the fight. And, and, and you know, the thing that people need to remember is, you know, Donnie was leading the Daytona 500 going into the third turn of the last lap. He was that close to winning the Daytona 500. So um, he was a great driver and, a, and he's remained a great uh, spokesman for the sport. He really did. Um, and, and all those guys involved in that finish did, whether it was on the track or off the track. Um, yeah. You mentioned that 1971 race and I read this, I think, in the book, 100 Things NASCAR Fans Need to Know and Do Before They Die, which I believe was written uh, by Mike Hembry. And so if this is inaccurate, blame Mike Hembry. Um, it's uh, coming uh, straight uh, from the source. He, but he is He's brilliant. Mike's a great writer. He is. Sure. Um, but I read that in that race, because, you know, Greenville Pickens, not a big track today. The land isn't wasn't a big track, especially back then. I read that the person who is responsible for getting that footage, getting that feed back to ABC studios in New York was actually set up in a bathroom at the track in the concourse because they didn't have the adequate space for him to, to work in. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the tracks back in that era, you know, primitive is a good word for it. I mean, you know, their press box may be the size of a chicken coop, you know, the, the facilities at the track, you know, were very limited. And of course, when it comes to communications, they might have a phone line that goes down to the ticket office and that's the only communication they had. And, uh, you know, back in that era, you would see drivers like after practice, they'd have to walk across the track, go to a phone booth if they wanted to call their families or, you know, do an interview and let people know what was going on but they would walk across the track in their uniforms and, and, and wait in line to get on, to get on a payphone to, to make a call. So, yeah, I, 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 I think Mike's spot on with that. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it, we think of our communications today, but for 1971, that was quite a, quite an accomplishment when you think about how few sporting events were on live TV. You know, the NFL was still in its low uh, growth period. And, you know, uh, college basketball, again, maybe delayed a day or two before you could see it. So, yeah, it was it was a different world that, um, you know, us old guys like to talk about, but it's really kind of hard to comprehend what was what was happening uh, during that period. It really is, especially compared to today. And yesterday I was on a road trip about maybe 20 laps after the green flag fell. So I was watching the race before we got in the car on my phone. As soon as we got in the phone, 
plugged in my headphones and listened to the broadcast on the NASCAR app via PRN and I had up to, you know, maybe 30 seconds delayed, but still only 30 second delayed scoring. And I'm yeah. a thousand miles away from the racetrack. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it is. I mean, I remember the days of like for the Daytona qualifying races, I would go out and get in my car and drive till I found a place that the radio broadcast could be heard and sit in my car and listen to the races. They certainly was no live TV or anything at all like that. And you would listen for Ken Squire, Mike Joy, Jerry Punch, those people uh, broadcasting those qualifying races. And I remember sitting there with the notepad you know, writing down who the finishes were and trying to figure out who wasn't going to make the Daytona 500. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what we could do. And, and, uh, uh, again, it's instantaneous now, you know, uh, Kyle Busch can spin and crash and, and it's known worldwide in, in 30 seconds, you know, <clears throat> we have people, uh, with NASCAR that are sitting you know, in our, in our offices and they are screening every second of the race. And anytime that they see a worthwhile clip, they go in, clip it immediately. So Kyle Busch's crash, you can look online 30 seconds later and there's the crash. There's, there's the, the crash and the story and, Maybe, you know, a few minutes later after Kyle gets out of the infield care center, here's an interview with Kyle talking about what happened. And, you know, it's just, uh, it, it, it's great. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the good old days, I loved the good old days. But as far as racing news and information and coverage, you know, these, these, are, the, these are the golden days of it. And, uh, you know, I'll mention that uh, uh, sort of a big break for me came in 1982 when uh, ESPN was first starting to cover uh, NASCAR events. And um, I had a chance to watch a couple of the races and I thought, boy, these guys are kind of struggling with with information. And um, I knew Bob Jenkins and Larry Newber were IndyCar, Sprint Car, Midwest guys. And so I called Bristol, Connecticut, and I said, who's in charge of your NASCAR coverage? And they said, Terry Lingner. And I said, well, can I get his address? And with no thought at all, I sat down and wrote Terry a letter a couple of pages long and told him kind of, here's some things that I think you're missing in your coverage. And here's some things that I think you could improve upon. And I sent the letter and <clears throat> just a few days later, Terry is on the phone calling me saying, you know, you're right. We're just getting started in NASCAR. Uh, Terry was from Indianapolis. Uh, you know, he said, I know we know the IndyCar stuff, but we really don't know stock car racing. He said, why don't you come over to Richmond, Virginia uh, in a week or two when we're going to be covering a race there and I'd love to meet you. So I went over on Saturday morning and met Terry and I brought with me a lot of my old programs and pictures and things like that. And I sat and talked to Terry about, 
you know, what I felt like as a fan, he might want to think about in the broadcast. So we had a great conversation. I went in with no expectations at all other than to, you know, speak to him. And he said, here's what I want to do tomorrow. Sunday, I'm going to put you in the broadcast booth with Bob Jenkins and Larry Newber. And I want you to write them notes as the race is going on about what you think we need to be covering. And he said, I want you on headset with me talking to me about what you think the stories are in the race and what, you know, what would, uh, you know, what was going on. So, you know, the next day, I'm in the broadcast booth with ESPN and I've never worked television in my life. And I'm up there with Bob and Larry and Terry on the headsets and Mike Wells is our director. And I just start, I said, if this is my opportunity, I'm going to make the most of it. So I, I was really good at scoring races and keeping lap by laps. And I was really good at figuring pit strategy of who's pitting then and who's pitting now. And, you know, if Tommy Ellis is out there in this car, I can tell you about Tommy Ellis as a late model sportsman competitor and a champion. And so, you know, about two thirds through the race, I figured, I said, uh, Larry, I said, Bobby Allison is going to win this race because he's making it a one fewer pit stop than Tim Richmond. And Bobby, I mean, uh, Larry looked at my notes and was like, I think you got something here. So Larry goes on the air, talks about Bobby winning, uh, you know, with this strategy, Bobby ends up winning the race. And um, afterwards, Bob and Larry walk with me down to Terry and they said, you know, we've got to have this guy. We, we've got to have him. And so um, Terry is like, I don't know what I'd call your position. I don't have any budget for your position. But he said, I'd sure like to have you. And uh, he said, we're going to be doing a race at North Wilkesboro in two weeks. Uh, Can you come? And I'm like, I get in the race for free. I get to watch from the broadcast booth. Yeah, I'm there. And so that's where my TV uh, journey began in 1982. And, you know, for the next uh, 12 years or so, I was in the broadcast booth for every NASCAR uh, production, whether it was uh, Bush Series, Cup, whatever. And I got to work with the greatest announcers ever, from from Bob Jenkins, Larry Newber, to Benny Parsons, Ned Jarrett, and Jerry Punch. And, I mean, just you name them, I had a chance to work with them. So that was my golden opportunity. And it came because I wrote a letter. And when I, when someone answered the letter, I responded and I was able to take advantage of it. But Terry taught me the TV business. He said, you know, NASCAR, I'll teach you TV. And so, um, you know, for 19 years, I lived in Indianapolis and worked for Lingner Group Productions. And we produced everything from Thursday Night Thunder to all the uh, Bush Series races on ESPN. I continued to work in the broadcast booth for the cup races for ESPN. And then in 1998, we had a chance to produce a five-hour documentary 
on the 50th anniversary of NASCAR. So I was heavily involved in that. I uh, was the producer, writer, co-producer with Jenny Nickel. And um, I had the chance to, to go interview 90 of my heroes from the earliest days of the sport. Everybody from Louise Smith and Raymond Parks and Rebel Mundy and Tim Flock and Buck Baker and people like that. You know, I had a chance to go to their homes and interview them for this fifth for the 50th anniversary. And um, so we produced a five hour documentary for ESPN. At the time, it was the biggest budget documentary that ESPN had ever done. And uh, for me, it was the opportunity of a lifetime for me to go meet and talk to and visit with all of these people. And uh, when I went to interview them, I would say, look, I know that we'll probably only need two or three minutes for our documentary, but I want a chance to talk to you if you've got the time. And they were all like, talk as long as you want, ask me anything you want. And, uh, you know, I had a chance, like I said, to talk to my heroes, but also to record all of those uh, stories that they had and the remembrances they had. And, you know, sadly, as we're celebrating their 75th anniversary, about a third or maybe more of the folks that I interviewed back in 98 have, have passed away. But we still have these recordings that were done with them. And so this year, uh, in the last 18 months preparing for our 75th anniversary, we've gone out and I've had the opportunity to go out and interview uh, folks for this 75th anniversary. And we've uh, done about 75 interviews with folks from our, from our past and uh, produced lots of different features and things that you'll see on YouTube or NASCAR.com or or through our Facebook page or Twitter or whatever, that we've been able to produce a lot of content around our 75th anniversary. And for lovers of history like us, it's been the perfect perfect chance to revisit a lot of these stories and, and tell some stories that, uh, that maybe uh, the newer fans have never heard before or introduce them to some of the early heroes of the sport. And uh, uh, that's, that's what I see my role as. And, and I'm so honored and privileged to, to work for NASCAR. And uh, I moved to Charlotte about 15 years ago from Indianapolis as the NASCAR hall of fame was being built. And I was uh, asked to come uh, to serve as sort of a historian to help with all of the preparation of the videos that are in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And we have produced um, every video. If you go to the NASCAR Hall of Fame, every video that you see, plus every tribute video for all of the inductees, the Landmark Award winners, the Squire Hall Award winners. So that's been a real privilege for, for me. And for me, uh, there are now 64 people that will be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and I've had a chance to interview or meet 61 of them. Uh, 
And a lot of them were people that I met as a little kid, Curtis Turner, Fireball Roberts, Lee Petty, folks like that. But then also to go all the way up to Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, and, and, and the guys that are stars today. So I do take very seriously my job with NASCAR to preserve the history. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate you, Samuel, for, for your interest in our history. And it's sort of my job to pass on to your generation and the generations in between of, of the love for the sport, but also how important it is and how interesting it is. And, you know, I can't imagine a sport with cooler characters. You know, these guys, these women were incredible for their bravery, for their ingenuity, for their mechanical abilities. And, uh, you know, and, and it goes all the way to today. Uh, just the other day, I had a chance to interview Cliff Daniels for a project that we're doing. And, you know, and I'm like, you know, I've interviewed Smokey Eunuch. I've interviewed Cliff Daniels. And, you know, and I'm like, this is this is just crazy that, uh, you know, that I've had that opportunity. But I'm thankful for it. For sure. And, and you've done our sport a great service in still um, and keeping the history going and, and passing it on. Um, my last question for you, sir, and it's kind of a combination. Um, so my, my first one, and, and this one is one I've, I've actually kind of stumped a couple of people on it. Um, I, I'm not sure why. I don't feel like it's the best question I've ever asked, but what do you think the sport needs to do to grow and, and to evolve to get a, a younger fan base? And the last part of it, I know we've talked a lot about history on this show today, but what are your predictions for the rest of the season? I mean, we had a crazy race yesterday, but who do you think could win the Cup Series championship this year? Yeah, as far as how we can continue to attract younger fans, I feel like that uh, we have, as a sport, uh, reached into a lot of the social channels that are now very important to young people. And, uh, you know, our presence on Twitter or X, our presence on Facebook, our present on, presence on Instagram, our presence on YouTube is all critical to reaching new fans because that is how they consume media. And I think that we have to meet them where they are. We're not going to be able to convince them, hey, come sit down to three, three and a half hours and watch one of our races. We need to get them interested to pull them in and then they'll want to sit and watch three, three and a half hours. But it's something that, that you know, we have to, we have to cast a lot of lines out in the water to, to attract them. And I think we need to make our drivers relatable. We need to make our cars relatable. And we have to do it in a way that attracts new fans, but it doesn't alienate our legacy fans. And that's, that's a balancing act. And, and, you know, every time you do something to help this group, they want to know why you're not helping this group. And, and balancing it is, is extremely difficult. But I'm very enthusiastic about, you know, what the future holds for the sport. 
uh, electrification of the cars is certainly on the horizon. But, you know, I have to trust our folks that are so smart about how do we make that transition. Uh, we still are uh, very dependent upon Ford, Chevy, Toyota, and perhaps some other auto manufacturer in the future. So if Ford wants this, if Toyota wants this, if Chevy wants this, then we have to figure out how do we balance that? How do we, how do we make that work? But, um, you know, as I said, I still think it's going to be people sitting in the grandstands, watching cars go round, watching cars drive road courses, street courses, short tracks, super speedways. And I think that that will continue to appeal to fans. As far as what's going to happen this season, I'm, you know, like you said, yesterday, the story changed half dozen times, you know, of who's in, who's out, how's it going to work? You know, is this driver going to be able to overcome this? But I think it's pretty clear that, you know, William Byron has had an incredible career, uh, an incredible year. It's his career year. Um, and I think that you'll see him advance to the final four. I, I, I know in the next round, there's a lot of things that can happen, but I think William uh, is, is good a good bet. I also think Kyle Larson is just because of his adaptability and the speed of his car and what they've been able to accomplish at Hendrick. I think he is. And um, Denny Hamlin is, is another one that has been extremely strong. And, um, you know, I think that I think that Denny, uh, this may be his year to make it to Phoenix, but I'm still not ready to say he's he's my favorite for the championship. Um, the fourth person, boy, that's 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 a tough one. Um, I think if I had to say right now, I'd lean towards Chris Busher. Uh, the the performance of RFK has just been outstanding, and Chris has consistently shown that he can do what it takes. And he's closed out races. He's won races. He's shown that he can be consistent. And even on days when he may not have the best car, he can still bring it home in a top with a top five. So I think for that reason, you know, everybody's got to get through Talladega. That's, you know, that's that's a that's a that's a tough one for everyone. <clears throat> and then we go to the Roval, which is another, you know, another animal out there. But I just think those four, based on their performance through the season are the most likely, although I wouldn't be sh shocked if any of the 12 current drivers are able to, to, to make it to that final four. Uh, my championship pick, uh, I, I'm sort of leaning towards William Byron. I know that he is really good at Phoenix. Rudy Fugel is great at setting up a car or a truck or whatever is running at Phoenix. And, and I'm sort of leaning towards William, uh, but, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be uh, sad to see any of these 12 drivers make the, uh, uh, win the championship. But I think William, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm letting yesterday influence me too much, 
but I, I really feel like that William knows how to be there at the finish. And when he gets the opportunity to close out a race, he closes it out. Does. Um, and speaking about Chris Busher, uh, we had the chance to talk with Bob Pockers and Fox Sports right before Daytona. And I will uh, forever cherish the moment that in that show, uh, my co-host and Bob, I think I can't remember who they picked. It might have been Hamlin. And I picked Chris Busher. And uh, I remember emailing Bob the day after the race and saying, you're still one of the best in the business right now, sir. But I got you this weekend. I, yeah. I got the win pick right. Yeah, I was so I mean, proud of myself. Yeah, that's that. That's the thing of it. I mean, we can all be experts, you know. We can all, you know, and, and and sometimes we pick with our heart, and sometimes we pick with our head, and sometimes we pick based on which way the wind's blowing, you know. And so, and so, it's that's that's part of being a fan. And you know, I'm almost seventy-two years old now, and I'm still a fan. I still love to go to the races. I still love to watch the races. I'm still interested in everybody from Carson Hosovar back to Red Byron. And so I, I, I think our fans, uh, you know, deserve to know their history, but they also deserve to know the future, but they also deserve to know what great stuff is going on on the racetrack every weekend. Absolutely. And, and I think we, 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 we got all over that map today. We talked about the present, the future, and the past. Sir, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, had a great conversation. And, and just like I thought I would, I learned a lot today that I didn't know. So thank yeah. you for opening up a treasure trove for us today. And, and thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Samuel. Anytime. And again, thanks for inviting me to be on your show. Yes, sir.